0: 1st Thessalonians If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 987 in that Bible. If this is your first time at our church, you should know that we don't really do series. We just kind of work our way through books of the Bible. So the book of the Bible that we're in today is in 1 Thessalonians. We've been working through it for some time now. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 9 through 12. But before we get to verse 9, I want, to, I want us to go back to verse 1 real quick and, and see something there. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul says you're doing it, but I want you to do it more. I want more of this. Okay, now let's go to our verses this morning in verses 9 and 10. Now, concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing. Okay, again, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Verse 1, verse 10, Paul's repeating this language of more and more when it comes to sanctification. Sanctification. Uh, as some of you know, if you've never been to this church, you've never met me, maybe you don't know, but nice to meet you. I used to be a drug addict. Uh, if this was an N.A. meeting, I'd say, hi, my name is Sean, and you know, I'm an addict. Uh, but before I became a Christian, I was a drug addict, and it was pretty severe, and if you've ever been addicted to something, or been, uh, if you've ever had a close relationship with someone who's been severely addicted to something, then uh, you know that addicts... Are always chasing more and more no matter how much they get it's never enough that was me when I was a drug addict I would lie and cheat and steal and con and hustle and rob in order to get more and more until it almost killed me that was 16 years ago that I got off drugs And since then, I've still been chasing more and more, but just in a different way. Now, as a Christian, what I want more of is God. I want more Christ. I want more of the Spirit. I want more fellowship. I want more of a sense of the glory of heaven. And I am fighting and scraping and clawing by His grace to get more and more of who He is. Now, the key difference between Sean the addict and Sean the Christian is that addicts use more and more because they're chasing something that they once had and have lost, that they can never really get again. They're chasing that first high. As a Christian, however, we chase more and more, not to regain something that we've once had but lost, but rather to get more of what we already do have in Christ. We chase this more and more of sanctification because we know that we can have more. That's one of the promises of the gospel. All of the many blessings of Christ are yes to us who belong to him. The more and more of this morning's text pertains to the spiritual fruit of love. He says, you're doing a good job loving, but I want you to love more and more. More specifically, what he's doing is he's addressing love between Christians. As we've been working through this letter, you'll know that this is not the first time that Paul has talked about love. But what you may not know, because you can't really see it in your English Bibles, is that the Greek word that Paul has used thus far, any time he talks about love, has been the word agape. You remember we gave the definition for that a couple weeks back. It's it's the love of God that we see manifested in the gospel. It's it's a very sacrificial love. I give myself up for you. That kind of thing. But in this morning's text, Paul alternates to a different Greek word, and it's the reason why your English Bible says brotherly love. The word that he references, or excuse me, the word that he switches to is Philadelphia. As an American, even though you don't speak Koine Greek, you probably already know what Philadelphia means, right? Because we have a city, the city of brotherly love. In the ancient world, this word was used to refer to uh, other things besides this kind of love, but it was almost always used to refer to love between siblings of the same household. okay? That's why it's called brotherly love. And it seems like Paul uses this particular word at this point in the letter for a very strategic purpose. He's already been drawing on this metaphor of the church as family. If you remember, Paul talked about himself being like a mother to the Thessalonians, and like a father to the Thessalonians. And now he's talking about them as children in the household of God. You guys are brothers and sisters, and that's the way you need to love one another. Now what's really interesting here is Paul says that they're already doing a good job of this. He even gives an example of the good job. Go to verse 10 again. He says, for that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. If you don't know what Macedonia is, it's kind of big piece of the empire in the ancient world where Greece was, it's complicated. But in this region of Macedonia, these Christians were doing a good job showing their love. We're not sure exactly what Paul is talking about here. Uh, It's almost certainly not financial because Macedonians were actually the ones who were helping others out financially. Uh, Maybe it's this, go to chapter 1 verse 7. In chapter one, verse seven, Paul says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So maybe it's they have preached the gospel to those who are in Macedonia. Maybe it's just their testimony has been an encouragement to those in Macedonia. We don't know, but either way, they're loving the Macedonian Christians well. Praise God for that. But, Paul says, you have to keep going. You have to do more. And that's what we see in verses 11 and 12. Go there with me. And he says, uh, let's just start back in verse 10 again. He says, for that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I just a quick pause. If you're wondering what it means to work with your own hands, Paul doesn't mean like it's a command of the Lord that, like, you be a carpenter or a construction worker or, like, a pottery person, right? Working with your own hands is just kind of a euphemism for, like, you're minding your own affairs. You're, you're working. You're actively engaged in something. So you can do that as a, as a writer of fantasy fiction, as an IT guy, or as a plumber, right? Any number of those things. But that's the point. So it seems like even though the Thessalonians, as loving as they may be, uh, it seems like they haven't arrived. You know, there's still a gap in their love. There's there's a scratch in the paint of their love that needs to be buffed out. You know, it's like Paul has said, like, "Hey, go mop that dining room," and then he comes out and he looks around and he goes, "Yeah, good job," but you missed a spot. And that missed a spot that he's addressing in this morning's text is what we find in verses eleven and twelve. It's it's this language of living a quiet life minding your own affairs and working with your hands. He says, if you're not doing that, you're being unloving. That's kind of vague. How is not minding your own affairs? How is not working quietly with your own hands? How is that unloving? Well, let me pray, and then we'll find out together. Father, we pray that uh, you will help us through what we learned today, to be a church that loves like Jesus. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. This language that Paul uses, minding your own affairs, working with your own hands, in the context of what's happening at Thessalonica, it might be difficult to know what exactly what he was talking about if this was the only source of information we had about what was going on at the church. You know, Instead of just being 1 Thessalonians, it would just be Thessalonians, and this is the only letter. We'd kind of be like, man, I wish we knew exactly what he was talking about. But as it so happens, 1 Thessalonians is not the only source of information we have. (sighs) Had to be mine. I bet you told her not to run, too, huh? Yeah. But as it so happens, 1 Thessalonians is not the only letter we have. We have 2 Thessalonians. Now, here's what's really interesting about the connection between these two letters, In this morning's verses, Paul is addressing these issues at a very general level. It's a problem in the church, but apparently it's not that bad of a problem. Timothy, when he came back from Thessalonica to find Paul in Corinth and give him an update about how the church was doing, he probably said, like, yeah, they're doing good. They're resisting persecution. They're growing in grace. They're loving, all that stuff. But there is this one issue. And then he would say this. So Paul probably feels like, okay, I need to address this in my letter but it's not a super huge deal, and it's probably only a small faction of the church. So rather than like going in and attacking somebody about this, I'm just going to kind of make a general statement. You guys probably know what that's like. You've probably been on a sports team or had a job somewhere where something was really just like one or two people's fault, but the boss comes out and says, like, hey, guys, here's something we need to work on, okay? So that's what Paul is doing here. He's just addressing, addressing it in a more general fashion. But... By the time Paul writes his second letter to the Thessalonians, the issue has apparently not resolved itself. So Paul kind of rolls up his sleeves and he's like, all right, I guess we're going to do this. I guess I have to tell you a little bit more explicitly what the problem is and how to fix it. He ramps up his rhetoric. So turn with me, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul addresses the same themes but more pointedly. 2 Thessalonians which if you're not super familiar with the Bible, is right after 1 Thessalonians. And then we're going to start in verse 10 and go to verse 12. Paul says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies which is a super clever way for Paul to say that. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Right? So Paul says, listen, I already tried to address this. You guys didn't hear me. Now listen, I told you this. When I was with you, I told you this. I gave you this command. If you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. Do your work. Earn your own living. Live a quiet life. Stop being a busybody. Apparently, there are some people in the church at Thessalonica that are being lazy. What do I mean by lazy? I mean, they're not earning their own living, which means they're probably mooching off the church in the church's benevolence program, you know, program. And if not the church's benevolence, then individual members of the church and their generosity. On top of that, as is typically the case, when people are being lazy and not minding their own affairs and doing hard work, they tend to get involved in the affairs of others. So in this morning's text, when Paul says uh, that they're not living a quiet life, I think that phrase is meant to encapsulate the next two things that he says, which is minding your own affairs and working with your own hands. So I think all of that can just be captured in what we read in Second Thessalonians when he says... Not being busy, but being a busybody. That's the issue in the church. Not being busy, but being a busybody. You're not working at all, but you are involved in what everybody else is doing. That's your full time job. Now, in light of this understanding of the text, I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon referring to this as being a lazy busybody. Okay? So, uh, there's still one question we have to a- ask, though. How is being a lazy, busybody unloving? Because that's the point, right? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, you're doing a good job loving, but there's an issue. You're not loving in this way. And then he goes on to talk about being a lazy, busybody. But that connection isn't immediately clear, right? How is being a lazy, busybody unloving? Well, that's what the next five points are going to cover. I've got five points for you in this morning sermon. And for those of you who are going, you're just now getting to the points, they're going to be short, don't worry. Although I know you'd stay here with me all day if they weren't going to be. I know lunch doesn't matter. Here are your five points. It's lying, point number one. It's stealing, point number two. It's a failure to love yourself, point number three. It undermines the witness of the church, point number four. And it's unloving towards God, point number five. If you miss that, I'll try to hit them all again as I move through. I'll try my best. So the first reason why being a lazy, busybody is unloving is because it's lying. Guys, the church is called to help the poor. That's just part of what the church does. That's part of our mission. That's one of the ways that we show the love of God to a lost and dying world. Paul, when he met with other apostles in order to validate his ministry, they were like, oh yeah, Paul, you're good. Keep going. But hey, don't forget to help the poor. And you see this theme all throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. This is one of the things that God's people do. Now, as Americans, we tend to have a slightly skewed understanding of what it means to be poor. We tend to talk about the poor as those who live below some arbitrary level of income. But in Scripture, the poor are those whose life circumstances are such that not only do they lack basic provision but they also lack the means of securing their basic provision. So an example of that would be an old widow. If you're, if you're asking yourself, Sean, why are you throwing the, the, the modifier old in there? It's because that's what Paul himself adds in 1 Timothy when he talks about the benevolence program that the church has towards helping widows who don't have any food. He says they have to be at least 60 years old. You can get that, right? If they're, if they're younger, they can get married and they can you know figure it out. Uh, this would be an orphan, right? No mom, no dad. How are they going to eat? How are they going to get food and clothing, right? A sojourner or an alien in the land. Now, this is under certain circumstances, but you can imagine a scenario where someone is in a foreign land and they have no safety net, no friends, no. maybe they're even enemies of the people in the land. That would be a poor person. A legitimately disabled person. Okay, so we can kind of go down the list, but these are people who are not only lacking in basic sustenance, but they also lack the ability to acquire their basic sustenance, you know the bare necessities. To quote Rudyard Kipling, or the Disney rendition of it. Now, I grew up uh, American poor my whole life, uh, through my childhood. We lived in Section 8 housing. We were on food stamps, WIC, HUD. You know, I was on the free lunch program. We we basically received all the government and community aid that you could possibly think of. Now, what you need to know is that we did not receive that because my mom was not capable of working. We received that aid because she would not work. My mother, chose, and I'm trying to use my life as an example because I don't want to throw anybody else under the bus or make you feel bad about uh, different life circumstances, but my mom chose drugs and the party lifestyle over taking care of her family. And then she took advantage of the government largesse in order to do that. If you would have asked my mom, however, if she could have worked, she would have said, no, I can't. She would have been lying. She was fully capable of working and providing for a family. And this is true of so many who want to have everything given to them in this life. Those who think that being provided for is a natural right, that is, it's something that they deserve that implies that someone else must provide it. A lazy person who looks to others to provide for them when they have the ability to provide for themselves is lying. What they are doing is saying, God has not given me the ability to put food on the table, clothes on my back, and heat into my home when in fact he has. And of course, when someone is lying, we don't want to encourage them in their lies. If a person is able to work but simply refuses to work, we must tell them, like the Apostle Paul, if you don't work, you must not eat. In saying this, we're telling them the truth about themselves. And also, we're telling them that we're not going to buy into their lies. We're saying, listen, you are capable of using the body and the mind that God gave you to provide for yourself, to provide for your family, to help those in need, to glorify God. So stop lying. Stop lying. And get to work. Now, this example that I've used from my own life regarding laziness and government assistance, it might lead you down a road that I'm not uh, trying to lead you down this morning. You see, uh, I'm I'm loath, loath to see certain texts taken out of context in the Bible and applied to certain left-leaning political principles. I am also loath to see certain texts taken out of context and misapplied to certain political principles on the right side of the aisle. So what I'm not doing here this morning is drawing a straight line between this principle and something like food stamps, or safety nets, or the welfare program. The point that I'm making this morning has nothing to do with the welfare state, although I do have strong opinions about that, how helpful it is. As someone who grew up on welfare, I've got some stories. Nevertheless, that's not what this sermon is about. I am preaching about the church this morning, not the American political system. I'm a pastor, not a politician. My aim with this text is not to teach you about how to mend the American safety net. You know why? Because I don't know how to mend the American safety net. That's not my area of expertise. I'm not a subject matter expert in politics, but... I do know how God calls us to live together as a church. And one of the things about living together as a church is that we must be committed to the truth. And part of being committed to the truth in the church is not only that we don't lie to one another, but also that we don't allow one another to be lied to. So when there's someone who's being lazy and won't work and provide for themselves, when there's someone who can work but won't work, God says we cannot indulge them. We must love them. Tell them, the tr- tell them the truth, and have them get to work. The second reason why being a lazy, busybody is unloving is because it's stealing. There are three ways that it's stealing. Here's the first one. These are subpoints, by the way. Uh, the first one is from Ephesians 4:28. Let me, let me read that to you talking about actual thieves, he says, if you used to be a thief before you got saved, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing a contrast. The thief in his prior life exerted his energies for himself. He took from others to provide for himself. He says, now that you're a Christian, though, you need to exert your energies for yourself and for the good of others. Instead of taking from others, you need to serve others. So, according to Paul in Ephesians 4:28, for Christians, work is fundamentally other-oriented. It's an act of love. Now, this is a big part of what's called the Protestant work ethic. If you've ever heard of that, it refers to primarily this idea that you don't have to be a priest in order to do work that glorifies God. You don't have to be a pastor right? If you're a cobbler or a cable guy or a grocery bag person at Publix, which is actually a pretty great job with great benefits, if you're whatever you do, you work like half the people in this room in the government missile defense system, right? Any of that, you can work and do that for the glory of God. But another aspect of the Protestant work ethic is that we work so hard because we know that God uses the fruit of our labors to serve those in need. Paul says to serve the weak. OK? But when we are capable of working and simply choose not to, we are taking material away, material support away from those who actually do need it. We're stealing support from the poor. Uh, there is some political theory and economic theory that says that the world economy is a zero-sum game. You know There's only so much pie, and if you get some, then I don't get some. I don't think that's true. But I do think that the church is much closer to that, especially our church. You take our church. We have less than 100 members. We have a very limited financial capacity. So what that means is that if you choose to be lazy and not work and try to hustle your way to financial assistance from the church, what you're doing is you're taking financial assistance away from someone who may actually need it. In other words, you are functionally stealing from the poor, which... I shouldn't have to explain, is unloving. As bad as that is, we are also stealing uh, in a second way. We're stealing from those who support us. If we are being lazy and not working when we can work, we are stealing from those that we look to to help supplement what we lack. How? Well, because think about it like this. Here's an illustration. If you tell me that you need help paying your rent because you have cancer and you're not able to work and I pay your rent... And then a couple months later, I find out that you didn't have cancer. I'm not only going to feel lied to, but I'm also going to feel like you stole that money from me. You acquired that support by means of deception, which is functionally the same thing as stealing. The third way that being a lazy, busybody is stealing is by sapping kingdom resources. This is just an extension of the second one, but I just want to dig in a little more, and three bullet points is better than two. So if you look in our church covenant, you'll see that we only spend money on four things in this church. Very streamlined budget. Visitors, you notice, not a lot going on here, right? You know, we don't spend money That staying on the back wall. We could have spent some money on that, but we spend it on other things, four things. Here they are. The support of the ministry, that paying your pastor or so on and so forth, uh, buying books, you know, all that kind of stuff. The expenses of the church, heat in this building, electricity, all that. The relief of the poor and then the spread of the gospel through all nations. That's training missionaries, supporting, you know, missions efforts, evangelism efforts, so on and so forth. Those are the four things that we spend money on. Now, this point is very simple. If you are being a lazy, busybody and you are trying to take resources from the church when you don't need them, those are resources that could go to any of those four other things. And that's pretty unloving. Point number three. It's a failure to love yourself. Being a lazy, busybody is a failure to love yourself. There's a fairly liberal church here uh, in our city that is encouraging its church members to put signs in their front yards that says this, Love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. And then like under that third one, love yourself, there's a line underneath it. I guess to emphasize like that's maybe the most important thing. I don't know, but the line is under that one. Whatever that church means when they say love yourself is probably not what I mean this morning when I say love yourself. What I'm talking about this morning is loving your future self. Jesus talks about this kind of self-love when he says things like this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In this teaching, Jesus is teaching us to sacrifice pleasure in the present, here and now, for an infinitely greater pleasure to be enjoyed by our future selves in glory. Now, this is. This is kind of like those really annoying people who are always telling you to like eat healthy and exercise now so that your future self will thank you, you know? It's like that but on like an eternal scale, okay? Now, what I want to show you this morning is that I'm not just connecting these ideas, you know, working hard and loving your future self. I'm not connecting these ideas out of thin air. But in order to show you that, I have to make like two or three logical connections. So like if you're lost, everybody come back to me, everybody put on their thinking caps, really take a sip of your Red Bull, your coffee, but just try to focus in it and follow this train of logic so that you can understand this point that I'm making, okay? In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul makes this point explicitly, follow the train of, of reasoning. He says, in everything I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. That sounds familiar, right? It's like what we read in Ephesians 4. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Work hard so that you can help the weak because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what's our motivation for working hard here and now to help others, to help the weak? I mean, listen, if you tell me, Sean, I want you to work hard for reasons that pertain to you, It'll be fairly easy for me to do that, even on my lazy days, right? Like, you know, to pay off your house, to get out of debt, you know, go do the Dave Ramsey debt-free scream kind of thing, you know, Uh, to get a new car, to whatever, to increase your sense of financial security, whatever your thing is, you work hard so that you can do that. That's pretty easy motivation. But what motivation is there for me to sacrifice and to work really hard here and now in order to serve others, to serve the weak? Because that's ultimately what it comes down to, right? A question of motivation. Well, Paul answers that by quoting Jesus. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But what does that mean? It's more blessed. What does that mean? Well, I think we can say at least one thing that Jesus means here is that there's something about giving that is having less for me to enjoy here and now whatever that may be, there's something about having less now, sacrificing now, that will produce something greater, more pleasure for me in the future. That's what being blessed means in this context. In the future, I'm going to enjoy it. Jesus says, work hard, sacrifice here and now, out of love for your future self. Do You guys see that? So whether we excuse me, whenever we work with our hands and provide for ourselves and help others, we're not only loving others, but we're also loving our future selves. Jesus uses this kind of motivation all over Scripture. He's always telling people, take up your cross and suffer now for the glory that's going to come in the future. Don't accumulate good for yourselves now. Accumulate goods for yourselves in the future. Love your future self. The fourth uh, way that being a lazy busybody is unloving is that it fails to love the lost. Look at verse 12. After giving these commands to basically not be a lazy busybody, in verse 12 he says, So that. Uh, that's a pretty important phrase whenever you see that in scripture. He's saying, This is the, this is the reason why. You know, this is the, the motivation behind these ethical commands I've given you. So that. You may walk or live properly before outsiders. Outsiders, non Christians, the lost, the world, however you want to think about it, they may not agree with every jot and tittle of Christian ethics and morality. But they do have the law of God written on their hearts. Every human being has a conscience, it's their moral compass. And it is broken by sin, but it's not wrong all the time. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Even a broken compass strikes true north every now and then, I think. I should have stuck with the clock metaphor. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that it's not that unbelievers can't comprehend the truth, that they can't understand morality. It's that they reject the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it shouldn't surprise us then when the world understands basic moral precepts and that when they see us being immoral, they judge us for it. And then the sin of our immorality is only compounded by the sin of our hypocrisy. Because it makes sense when non-Christians act that way, but we're the ones who are you know, calling out to the world to be holy. Uh, I just want to say, state it plainly. It is an obviously disgraceful, and I'm using that word disgraceful on purpose, it is an obviously shameful thing to exploit the kindness and charity of others because we are being lazy. Now, on top of that, it is an obviously disgraceful and even more disgraceful thing to take advantage of your family members right so like you think about you read in the paper some guy got caught breaking into cars uh, around town somewhere you know that's disgraceful that's shameful you shouldn't do that he should be working with his hands instead of stealing from people who have worked hard with their own hands to buy that stuff in those cars okay but now let's say you read in the paper that you find out that some guy has for the last 10 years been stealing his disabled grandma's disability check right the shame is compounded how could you do that to your own family member That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a shameful thing. And he says that the world can see that when you do that, and it doesn't like what it sees. Even though they are sinful too, it doesn't matter. They see your sin, and they're going to judge you for it. Christians, have you ever experienced this before? You've been out trying to live a life of holiness, trying to walk in purity before the world? And then you mess up, you do something you're not supposed to do, and man, there's always a non-Christian right there, right? They see it. They see it. I remember when I was in the army and I used to have to take PT tests. And listen, man, the army is like an evangelism gold mine. It's just all day, every day, I'm just, you know, just trying to evangelize as many of my fellow army guys as I... Is that funny, Blaine? I'm trying to evangelize as many of my fellow soldiers as I possibly can, and then we're out taking a PT test one day, and guess what? Two miles is a long way to run, okay? It's a long way to run. I probably wasn't going to make my time. Man, I saw a shortcut, so I took it. I passed my PT test, but I cheated. Guess what? One of the main guys that I was trying to evangelize for like a year prior to that, he saw me. He approached me. He judged me. And then after that, I couldn't really talk to him anymore. In his mind, I was disqualified. I was a hypocrite just like everybody else. That is what Paul is talking about here when he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Guys, the world is watching us and they are waiting for us to fall. So it's very important that we conduct ourselves properly. So that, and not out of a sense of a shame, not of like, a, oh no, I don't want to get caught. No, we want to walk properly because we love them. We want them to be called into this holiness that we're trying our hardest to live out, even though we fail. And so, insofar as it is possible for us, we don't want to contribute to the image of the church being a place full of hypocrites. We want to maintain our witness. Number five, being a lazy, busybody fails to love God. It fails to love God. Being a dad has been a, uh, it's been a wild ride. Actually, speaking of being a dad, where are my children? They're down? Okay. Wild ride. Some stuff, uh, as a dad, you see coming. You know, you kind of prepared for it. You've seen it with other people. You read about it in books. But some stuff, uh, it really catches you off guard. One of the things that has surprised me about being a parent has been how much pleasure I take in my children's dependence on me. You know? Now, sometimes it can be annoying. Exasperating, really. But I really enjoy my children being dependent on me. And the more that my children grow in their independence, the more I long for them to go back to a state when they were more dependent on me, when they needed help putting on their shoes, even though it literally drove me crazy and I could never do it right. You don't believe me? Ask any empty nester in this room, any mama who's raised babies and sent them off into the scary world uh, outside of their home, and they'll tell you one of the things that they miss most is how much their kids need them. You know, That's why they want grandkids so bad. Ooh, somebody else who needs me. You know, I'm here to serve and help. In a similar yet infinitely more holy way, God loves it when we are dependent on him. Uh, actually, I need to modify that. Let's, let's say that another way. Uh, we are dependent on God, wholly, entirely, for life and for breath and for all good things. We are completely dependent upon God. What God loves is when we recognize, when we admit our dependence on him. That's why he tells us to pray. You ever think about how weird it is that God asks us to pray to him when he knows everything that we need before we ask him? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6 when he's teaching on prayer. He says, Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. Nevertheless, he calls on us to ask. Why? Because it glorifies him when we go, Daddy, I need you! In the same way that it makes moms and dads' hearts happy when their kids go, Mom, I need you! The only difference is God never gets annoyed with us, even when we get really annoyed with our kids. Now, when we, when we love God like this, actually I got lost in my notes, hang tight, I'll be back with you in 30 seconds. Oh yeah, trying to be uh, trying to have dependence on others outside of God is, is unloving to God. Being dependent on God is an act of love towards God, and we'll just pretend that I did that better than that. Okay, now, uh, if you read verse 12 of this morning's text, you might think that Paul is calling the Thessalonians out of a state of dependence into a state of independence, right? Because look at the language he uses there. He says, not only so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, right? I don't want you to be dependent on anyone. So you might think that what he's doing is he's wanting them to be these independent people. But I don't think that's quite right. I think what he's doing is he's calling the Thessalonians away from an unnecessary and an unloving dependence on other human beings and calling them to a necessary and rightly oriented dependence on God. Which not only communicates something significant to outsiders, but also glorifies him as the father who does a good job of providing for his children. Okay, that's it for point number five. But you may be wondering, Sean, why haven't you said anything about minding your own affairs? If we if we said we can kind of summarize these three ethical imp, uh, imperatives under uh, be busy at work, don't be a busybody, it seems like Sean, you haven't said much about being a busybody. Why haven't you really talked about that much? Well, I'll tell you why. I think that if we engage in the kind of work that God is calling us to, this work of love that involves all of ourselves giving all of our time and all of our talent and all of our treasure to serve him to provide for ourselves to provide for our family to provide for the weak to care for the church if we're involved in that we're just not really going to have much time or energy left over to be involved in the affairs of others we're just not going to have it in us to be busybodies you know whenever i see someone who, online who is like striving to have like a real platform on whatever social media that they're on I usually know that that's because they don't have much of a platform in real life. And typically, those who have like a real platform and real friends and real family and a real audience in real life, they tend to be less concerned about what people on the internet uh, think of them, how they view them. So if I'm busy trying to be, for example, the best dad that I can be, then I just, I'm not going to have a lot of time and energy to get involved in your parenting affairs. That's not to say that I'm not going to help you, but it means I'm not going to be meddlesome, right? I'm just... I'm just trying to do the best I can with the two I got, okay? If I'm trying to be the best husband that I can be, then I'm not really going to have the inclination or the wherewithal to meddle in the affairs of your marriage. If I'm striving to be the best pastor I can be, then I'm really not going to have time to get involved in theological dust-ups with other pastors and evangelical leaders on Twitter. I just, you know, listen... I have a family of 50-something people <laughs> whose lives I need to be constantly involved in. How, do, how on earth would I have time to get involved with some dispute on the internet? I just don't. So I think the solution to the problem of being a busybody is not to try to be less of a busybody, but to be more busy in the right way. Does that make sense? Good. Now, before closing, I want to sneak one more point in. Sorry, but I have to do this. You have to do it every now and then as a preacher just to keep people on their toes. There's, there's something really important in the text that we haven't addressed yet that we can't end the sermon without addressing, okay? And it's in verse nine. Paul says that the Thessalonians don't need anyone to write to them about loving God. Look, look back at verse nine real quick. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, this statement could seem to be a massive contradiction in light of the fact that two verses later, Paul writes to the Thessalonians and teaches them how to love. So, you know, which is it, Paul? Do, do the Thessalonians need you to write to them to teach them how to love, or do they not? Well, I think you'll understand how this all fits together when you understand this phrase, taught by God. It's actually one word in Greek, theodidaskala, taught by God. Uh, But this English phrase, taught by God, uh, it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 54. In Isaiah 54, verse 13, we read this. This is talking to the nation of Israel. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. What you have to understand is the context of Isaiah in which this verse comes in. In the context of Isaiah, the people of Israel have been through civil war. It's been nasty. They're not doing a good job of loving one another. The tribes are actively trying to kill each other. All the children of God are at war. The kingdom of Israel has split into two. Things are not good. The book of Isaiah has a lot to say about what God's going to do to fix this problem. Not only the problem of rebelling against God, but the way that they're not loving each other very well. But in chapter 54, what we just read, God says, listen, this is how I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to teach you how to love one another. You don't have it in yourself to figure this out. In your flesh, in your sin nature, you can't fix this on your own. You need me to teach you how to do this. Jesus quotes Isaiah in his own ministry when some Jews grumble against him. Jesus is out there teaching, calling people to repent, declaring the kingdom of God is at hand, saying, hey, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm God in the flesh. You know, the Jews, they don't like that. They grumble against him. And so Jesus says this. This is his response. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Four. So this inability, your inability to do something is connected to this next phrase. Four, it is written in the prophets, Isaiah, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him will come to me. What Jesus is saying is you can't come to me unless God the Father draws you to me. And the colloquialism, the thing that he pulls from in the Old Testament in order to say that is, unless God teaches you to come to me. So in both Isaiah and in Jesus' ministry, this phrase taught by God, it refers to our inability to do something and God giving us the ability to do something. Friends, consider how powerful it is that Paul pulls this phrase, which is so loaded with meaning. He pulls this phrase as he's writing to this new church at Thessalonica, and he says, listen, you don't need me to teach you how to love one another. He's not talking about the particularities. He's not talking about the specific manifestations of love that may arise in the church. He's talking about their ability at all to love one another, their base capacity, their heart's ability to love. He says, you don't need me to do that because God's already taught you. God has given you the ability to do something that you could not do without his help. And friends, this is the fulfillment of the great promise of the Old Testament. Can everybody just turn with me to Jeremiah 31 real quick? We're going to be in Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah gives this word of hope to the people of Israel when they are in a state of complete despair. And in verse 31 of chapter 31, God says this to the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their father on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I I was their husband, declares the Lord. You see, the issue here is that God gave them a command and they couldn't keep it. They broke it. That's the story of the whole Old Testament. God's people are incapable of observing the great commandment, loving God, loving your neighbor. They just cannot do it. So God says the day is coming where you're going to be in a covenant where you don't have to worry about breaking it. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It won't need to be on stone. It won't need to be written down in a letter somewhere. I'm going to put it in them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, pay attention to this wording. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The great promise of the Old Testament that was fulfilled by Christ for the church in the New Testament is that no longer would we have to go to other members of the covenant community and say, do what you're supposed to do. We don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because God has given us the ability and the desire to do it. The only thing that's really left now is for us to figure out the particularities of how to do it. And that's what Paul does this morning. He says, you don't need me to teach you about your need and desire to love, but you do need me to kind of help you figure out how to do it a little better. Friends, I hope you understand how amazing this phrase is in this text for how you live out your Christian life. What Paul is doing here is he's he's grounding his commands, these are called imperatives, in the indicatives of the gospel. He's saying, I want you to do this in light of what God has already done. If you get these two things backwards, friend, you are going to live a miserable Christian life. If you say, I want you to do this so that God will do that, then you've got the order of operations all wrong. You're going to end up trapped in fear and anxiety. You're going to live under a burden that God never designed for you to live. But when you understand that God always gives us these commands to do stuff in light of what he's already done for us? Do a better job loving because God has already taught you how to love? Well, that changes your whole Christian walk. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you feel like, I don't even know how I could begin to try to love people the way that I'm supposed to. I've never been loved well. I feel like I don't have the capacity to love. I know what you mean. I've been there. Many of us in this room have been there. Our hearts have felt cold and dead and dark. And it was only Christ that saved us and rescued us from that. He showed us what love is when he gave his life up for us. He called us into a relationship with himself. He cared for us. He cleaned us up. He made us new. And now he makes that call to anyone and everyone who so desires. He says, if you will just turn from your sin and trust in me, you will know what love is. And you don't have to earn your way into that love. You don't have to figure it out on your own. God will teach you. Let's pray that he continues to teach us as a church. Father, we are desperate for your help. This church is a room full of people who are failing on a daily basis. But we're also a people full of your grace and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, grounded in the truth of your word strengthened by the fellowship of the saints. So Father God, we praise you that you're never gonna leave us to our own devices, that even in our sanctification, you're never going to leave it up to us to figure it all out. Salvation is from you, God, from first to last. And that is our only hope. So we praise you. Amen.